Most of us have multiple copies of God's Word in our homes and enjoy unrestricted access to Scripture. But there was a time when that kind of access wasn't common. In the 16th century, simply reading the Bible out loud was considered a crime punishable by death. And it was against that backdrop that God raised up William Tyndale, a man who sacrificed it all to make the Word of God available to the common man in English. We're talking about the history of your Bible on the Truth Forum with David Parsons. Our guest today is historian and biographer David Teams. David's book entitled Tyndale, The Man Who Gave God an English Voice, is a captivating account of William Tyndale and the English Bible translation. Listen closely, because in a moment, I'll tell you how you can receive that book as a free gift. But first, let's join Truth Remains founder David Parsons, along with our guest, David Teams. Welcome to another edition of the Truth Forum. I'm Dave Parsons. At Truth Remains, we like to say, men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains. And as a ministry, we are all about encouraging you to take refuge in God's Word. We are all about reminding the church that we as believers have certainty in the face of uncertainty. Truth, as revealed to us in God's Word, remains. Not long after I was saved, I discovered a love for church history that I didn't even know that I had through studying how we came to have the scriptures in the English language, and it became a fascinating, unbelievable story to me. And it didn't take long before I became captivated by one particular character, and that is William Tyndale. And today I'm honored that David Teams has joined us to talk about this incredible man of God. We're honored to have you with us on the Truth Forum, David. Well, thank you. You've authored several books, but I want our listeners to know about two in particular. The first is a book called Tyndale, The Man Who Gave God an English Voice. Right. What is it about Tyndale that has engaged you in such a significant way? Well, I think my first impulse with a question like that is probably the man himself. Tyndale was the real article. He wasn't just a Bible translator. There were so many more aspects to him, but, but he's as close to an English Paul as we can imagine, meaning that when he translated Scripture, he was actually living it at the same time. For instance, in Romans 8, there's a Scripture that says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or hunger or nakedness or peril or sword?' As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all day long and are counted as sheep appointed to be slain. Nevertheless, in all these things we overcome strongly through his help that loved us. Romans 8.35, that's a Tyndale translation. As he was working on the translation, he was actually living that type of life. Left England with a target on his back. The Roman Catholic Church sent out spies and Thomas More and Cuthbert Tunstall, Bishop of London at the time, were after Tyndale. They had spies everywhere. And, and so he was just under persecution and very much like the Christ inside him and the Christian that he was, he was his best. He was his very best under pressure. And I think that impressed me. Well, Tyndale was a man who did not compromise the Word. That's why I've been drawn to him over the years. He loved the Word and was, as he put it, singularly addicted to the Scriptures. 
And as you said, he lived the scriptures he was translating. I thought I think that gave him a tender heart, and yet he had to be so resilient in order to get the task accomplished. David, set the scene for our listeners. Talk about what fueled Tyndale's first translation. He was very warm, very generous, um, a selfless kind of man, very, very Christ-like. He kept his own counsel. Um, he was kind uh, and, and intensely focused. Uh, but he could also he could also be a very difficult piece of work at times. Um, and what I mean by that is is it took to do what he did to accomplish what he did took an incredible what's a good word hard headedness I suppose. I mean when you consider that the English Bible started really with an argument. He was staying in Western England uh, in Gloucestershire with a family that had two boys, and he was. It's thought, at least, that he was a tutor of these two boys. And it was kind of a wealthy family, and, and the local clergy would come and visit, of course, Roman Catholic clergy. And they'd sit at the table, and, and Tyndall would sit with them, uh, this young man. He was probably in his early 20s at that, at that time. And they'd sit at a table and inevitably would get into some type of spiritual discussions or some religious practice or something. And, and of course, the clerics begin to consider Tyndale an upstart, you know, this, up, this upstart young man, because he had so, so much more of a, a command of Scripture than, than these guys did. And so they, they got into an argument about the Pope, uh, the law of the Pope's law as opposed to God's law. And one of the uh, bishops, uh, in their argument between God's law and, and the Pope's law, one of the clergy actually said that we would be better off without God's law, preferring the Pope's law. In other words, the Pope was the law on earth. And William Tyndall made a, a comeback, and he said, I defy the Pope. Now, that, that statement alone could have gotten him burned at the stake, but he said, I defy the Pope, and if God grants me life, I will see to it that the boy driving the plow knows more Scripture than thou dost. And that was really the nativity of, of the English Bible that, that came to us through William Tyndale. So he had, that, he had that kind of hard edge about him, but he had to, to do what he did. The world was on fire at that time. And it's a fascinating study. Um, that hopefully answers your question. I love that boldness. He could have been killed just for saying, I defy the Pope. Exactly. Tyndale was such a gifted man. He could have had fame and fortune and lived a life of ease and comfort, but he chose a life of sacrifice, living in exile, in order to bring the Word of God to the people. You're absolutely right. Let me ask you this. Do you think that living a life on the run had an effect on his translation work? Well, absolutely. I mean, when you take a phrase like, Behold the Lamb of God, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In my Father's house are many mansions. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Seek and you shall find. Uh, with God all things are possible. In Him we live, move, and have our being. A phrase like, Give us this day our daily bread, is as complete as a thread of text can be. And it was fascinating to me because he was in Cologne, then he was in Hamburg, and then Wittenberg, and different places, and Worms, places like that. And he had to really do the translation while he was on the run. And his text reflects that. Uh, there is no excess in Tyndale. Uh, Tyndale, he was a man of God, but 
I approached him in my book also as a poet. He thought like a poet. Um, his wordcraft was very much like a poet. But I do think that the fact that he was in exile, the fact that he had to, to go from place to place to place, that it brought out the best of him. It, it's like Christianity itself. Christianity is at its best when under fire. If you go back to the early Christians who were persecuted, Boy, the church really had a, a, a very lucid vision of itself in those days, unlike we have today. Tyndale had the advantage of persecution. It not only affected his spiritual life, it affected his craft. Interesting that you would highlight the word persecution and that it was an advantage. And you know, that's really something believers today need to hear and remember because we live in a time and a place where persecution really has been foreign to us. Right. So these little New Testaments come flooding into England, smuggled in bales of cloth, and the light of Christ shatters the darkness of the Dark Ages. And this was the first time the Bible had ever been translated into English from the original Greek and Hebrew. And it really lit the fires of Reformation, didn't it? Well... Tyndall's Bible came out in 1526, and he did a revised version in 1534. And at that time, the Roman Catholic Church had a very strong hold over Europe. And England was Roman Catholic at the time. Having a vernacular Bible or an English Bible was against the law. There were six members of a family in Coventry in 1517. Six members of this family were put to death because they were teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Now... That's hard to even imagine. But basically, the, the typical believer who did not speak Latin, all of the liturgy was in Latin, the service was in Latin, the sermons were in Latin, and it was a very elitist kind of thing. But the typical believer was not able to speak or understand the Latin. He came to the service and even began to feel that it was a, a kind of magic that was going on. Even the phrase hocus pocus <laughs> might have been a corruption of the phrase in hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. Uh, hoc est corpus, if you, if you say it a little quickly, you can see how it might corrupt into hocus pocus because it was a form of magic. So imagine that someone comes along led by God and gives them a Bible in their own language. And Tyndale, he gave the plowboy the Bible in his own language, but he did it with an elevation about it. He did it with majesty and splendor. Imagine the typical believer comes in, and for the first time, he can read God in his own language, and he can see in 1 John where it says, God is love. Or in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not really heard these things before. When you have that shift that it's no longer in Latin and <laughs> they can read it for themselves, you know, because the, the Catholic Church did not want a vernacular scripture because if man was able to read the Bible for himself and study it and discern it for himself, he would have opinions about it. And that was, that was not something that they wanted to see at all. So, yeah, it was a, it was a major shift, uh, and I, as I said, not, in, not only in uh, English spirituality but in culture itself. Well, Tyndale truly was the light God used to shine into the darkness. Yes. But he was eventually caught and condemned by the crown, strangled and burned at the stake in 1536. But that's not the end of the story. That brings us to a second book of yours that I'd like to highlight for our listeners. It's simply called Majesty. And in this book, you give us an up-close look at the king behind the King James Bible. 
So, first, let me ask, why write a book on King James? I had written the first draft of a novel that put William Shakespeare kind of in the shadows of the making of the King James Bible, um, because Shakespeare was actually on the payroll of uh, King James when James first came to town. But I started reading more on James, and even when I was reading Shakespeare, there was this character kind of in the periphery, kind of in the margins. Uh, He had trouble in his legs. He kind of waddled when he walked. His tongue was too big for his mouth, so to speak. So had trouble, uh, especially when he spoke Latin. It was difficult to understand him. He was... He was afraid of water, so he didn't bathe. (laughs) And we're talking about James, but it was kind of in the periphery of my vision as I studied Shakespeare and going forward. But then when I started reading for a book on James, I became fascinated with him because he, (laughs) to do something like uh, the magnificence of the King James Bible, um, he becomes a very improbable or a very unlikely character to be behind that because of his personal quirks that to me it's like reading about martin luther what i love about luther i mean in spite of all the changes that he made in culture himself as much or more than Tyndall did is just his humanity Uh, and it's the same thing about james that's when i became fascinated with him and in the book i majored on his childhood because those are the things that fascinated me uh, was what were the elements that created the king the way he was this unlikely king but one of the beautiful things about James is the fact that God can use the most unlikely people (laughs) and the most improbable people to do amazing things. He certainly can. And when you consider James' upbringing, it seems strange that this would be the king behind the great King James Bible. He had such a sad and lonely childhood with strange parents, right? Yes. um, His mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, and she was just this fiery character. She was Queen of Scots when she was just an infant, just like her son James was later on. But she grew up in France. She became the Queen of France for a couple of years until her husband died. Then she goes back to a Scotland that she didn't love. And she was kind of uncontrollable. And and Elizabeth I of England was in the picture, too. They were cousins. Elizabeth didn't want her to marry Lord Darnley, uh, who was James's father, but she did anyway. And Darnley was wild as Mary was. Uh, Mary was a couple of years older than him. He was an alcoholic. He just lived this real lascivious lifestyle. They got married. Their their marriage was over (laughs) probably after six months, but by that time Mary was pregnant with James. And Mary conspired with another man to have her husband, Lord Darnley, killed. And so he was blown up out of his house when James was, was just an infant. So James had this type of anxiety from before he was born. Now, when Queen Elizabeth I died and James took over the throne in England, it was a very different time from when Tyndale lived in exile almost 100 years earlier. Yes, you're right. Can you give a sense of how things had changed? Well, by that time, England is no longer Catholic. It's no longer Roman Catholic. With Henry VIII, of course, Henry VIII became the head of the Anglican Church, started ransacking the the existing monasteries were there, and he became very, very wealthy. And the Englishman would probably know more about this, but there's a certain element of being an Englishman that means being not Roman Catholic. I think that that's true even to this day. 
Um, by the time James comes along, Elizabeth had been queen for over 40 years. Uh, it's 1603. And by that time, England is now in its golden age. And Elizabeth died in 1603, and then James becomes king. In England also, with the rise of the theater in the 1570s, with the demise of the Catholic Church, you know, after you've had the Catholic presence for centuries, you get kind of used to the form of Catholicism, the liturgy, the procession, the, just the grand pageantry of it all. And interestingly enough, the theaters kind of became that substitute, even to the point that, that many of the clothes that the actors would wear on stage were taken from, from old cleric garb and, and things like that. The theater is at its height. Uh, Hamlet was played in 1601, and Hamlet was the first play to be played at the universities of Oxford and at Cambridge, which was unheard of. You know, plays were not meant for men of stature or men of breeding, but I think Shakespeare and poets like him of that stature really raised the game. And again, I have to see Tyndale somewhere behind all that, because without, as scholars say, without Tyndale, no Shakespeare. So James felt like he was coming in to the promised land. And indeed, it was a wonderful time for James to come in. And that's the England that James inherited. And it was very, very different than Scotland. Scotland was a relatively poor country. Uh, England didn't have as much money as James thought they did, but it really didn't matter to him. He he was childlike in money. A lot of the things that he approached, he was very much like a child in, in the way he approached things. But for me, that was the beautiful part about him. He's definitely a testimony to the fact that God can use anyone, including an unbeliever like him, to accomplish his work in an extraordinary way. Yes. The process of translation for the King James is very interesting in light of all that was developing in the arts at that time. How did that potentially affect the translators? It was a listening culture. The King James translators, they were all weaned on the Elizabethan sonnet. More than likely, they had all seen Hamlet. Some of them, I'm sure, probably knew William Shakespeare. If not personally, they at least knew of him. And so, yes, it was a listening culture, and that was very important to James. One of the things he said up front in the preface was that the Bible was to be read in churches. It was about hearing, and that's the beautiful thing about the King James Bible, which they inherited from William Tyndall. Uh, Tyndall's Bible, uh, and I believe this has been said about the King James Bible too, is, is a preacher's Bible because it preaches well, it speaks well, it's very listenable. Even today when people say, oh, Shakespeare, oh, or King James Bible, you know, blah, blah, blah. But uh, Shakespeare wouldn't have written plays if it excluded the general listener. In other words, Shakespeare wrote plays that people of that time period, even the groundlings, even the common man, could understand. And there was a certain sophistication about those listeners back then that we have kind of lost in our time period. I used the Bible translation, the message, uh, to compare in my Tyndall book, but where Tyndall gave us, give us this day our daily bread. The same line translated in the message is, keep us alive with three square meals. Now, I don't know about you, the listener, but give us this day our daily bread. 
and keep us alive with three square meals. To me, that says two very different things. All of a sudden, we've lost that power of metaphor. We've lost the elevation. We've lost the splendor. I'm a firm believer that God spoke to man specifically with a lyrical voice. When David, when he wrote Psalms, he wrote more in terms of give us this day our daily bread. Very few of the Psalms sound to me like keep us alive with three square meals, if you can make that differentiation. God spoke to man through a lyricism. And I think if we take that lyricism away, that splendor, that that rhapsody, if I can use that word, we lose the mystery of God. God did not tell us everything. He purposed not to tell us everything. Uh, Deuteronomy talks about that the secret things belong to God, and those things revealed belong to His children. So in other words, there's some things that He cannot tell us, that He will not tell us. And He clothes His words in majesty and in splendor. And the things that Tyndale understood that he incorporated into the English language. The English language has the splendor that it has, essentially because of the Bible, because of the language of the Bible. Yes, Tyndale translated and he gave it an elevation, but that elevation was there in the original transmission itself. So we have a great debt to those guys, and I just think it's very important for us not to lose that sense of splendor that God chose to speak to man with. I couldn't agree with you more, David. God is clothed in splendor and majesty, and we want to honor and exalt his word accordingly. The history behind the English Bible is something that has captured my heart and yours. Hopefully, it will capture the heart of our listeners as well. Thank you so much for sharing with our listeners today, David. If you've never contacted Truth Remains, We'd like to send you David Team's book entitled Tyndale, The Man Who Gave God an English Voice as our gift. To receive the book absolutely free, go to truthremains.org gift and enter the keyword Bible. Now this offer's good through December 1st, 2015. If you've been encouraged by the ministry of David Parsons and Truth Remains, let me encourage you to share this podcast with a friend. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by mailing a tax-deductible donation to Truth Remains at P.O. Box 33187, Granada Hills, California, 91394. You can also make your gift by calling toll-free at 1-888-36-TRUTH or donate online at truthremains.org. And now, for David Parsons and the Truth Remains team, I'm your host, Jim Tuck, thanking you for your support and reminding you that men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains.